You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Loss, Damage and Denial. In partnership with the Loss and Damage Youth Coalition, we'll be showcasing young voices on the climate crisis from vulnerable regions around the world. Today, we'll be taking you to the Pacific, a region that's been described as on the front lines of climate change. Climate change is the single biggest threat to the Pacific region. Sea level rise in Tuvalu, extreme weather events in Tonga, water insecurity in Kiribati. For years, Pacific leaders have issued urgent calls for high-polluting countries to limit warming to a critical one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. In Tuvalu, we are living the realities of climate change and sea level rise as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Will these calls prompt meaningful action or will we continue to see investment in fossil fuels? We're back around the table of taking action on climate change. We're out of the naughty corner. I'm Jacob Gamble, broadcasting from unceded Wurundjeri country in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. Today on Earth Matters, loss, damage and denial. Young voices from the Pacific and the existential threat of climate change. I live near the coast. So like this is like one of the most um, vulnerable areas as we all know to like the effects of climate change. Sone Tupola is a law student who grew up in Maofonga, a neighborhood near the Tongan capital of Nukulofa. So I believe it's like an, it is uh, essential to acknowledge like the profound connection between indi- like individuals uh, such as myself with like the local environment, um, encompassing social, cultural and uh, environmental aspects. Um, as, a partic- as a Pacific Islander, and more importantly, a Tongan, I, I recognize the significance of understanding and respecting this um, interconnectedness that exists within uh, my community. So from a social perspective, as a, as a Tongan, I have a, a deep-rooted relationship with, our, with my local environment, uh, mainly the, the reliance on coastal areas for livelihood, fishing and agricultural um, practices, um, customs and knowledge are like a past, the past through generations, emphasizing the, the importance of uh, preserving uh, and safeguarding like our natural resources. Um, from, from, from a cultural point of view, like as a Tongan, we, we like to boast about our rich heritage uh, intertwined with the environment, um, for example, our uh, traditional practices, ceremonies and celebrations uh, often re- revolve around nature, uh, demonstrating um, the, uh, the, inst- the value and respect that we have for the land and the resources that it provides. Um, also, uh, pro- preserving like our cultural heritage and maintaining sustainable um, environmental practices go hand in hand. Um, ensuring the well-being of both the people and the ecosystem and like uh, the environment that we live in. Um, and from like a environmental standpoint, uh, Tonga is susceptible to the impacts of climate change, such as uh, the rising sea level, increased frequency of weather events and all those stuff. So, 
So I believe like um, as a Pacific Islander, we have like a very deep connection with our local environment. Sone is studying law in Fiji, but fears his homeland in the South Pacific might disappear if nothing is done about climate change. So like Tonga is particularly vulnerable to uh, rising sea levels, which um, threatens the coastal communities and infrastructure, as well as um, um, the communities like uh, people living around the area in the coast uh, or the environment um, around the area. Because of sea level rising, um, those those um, environment and people communities they are they are mostly affected uh, because of sea level rising. Um, in, uh, lead, because um, this leads to um, increased coastal erosion, saltwater intrusion. So this greatly affects um, our community um, living in the coast. As I mentioned, um, back in the kingdom, um, I'm I'm one of those. On people who we live near the coast, so we um, um, we experience that effect of climate change firsthand. Um, also, include um, including um, extreme weather events. Um, climate change con- climate change contributes like a lot to um, extreme weather events. Recently, um, um, in Tonga, as we all know, um, I think in twenty eighteen one of the strongest category cyclones that hit the kingdom was category five. It's believed Cyclone Gita is the worst storm to hit the tiny South Pacific Island nation in decades. More than half of all homes and buildings, including Tonga's parliament house, are said to be damaged or destroyed. Was yourself or any of your family affected by the cyclone in 2018? Yeah, like, um... I believe everyone in, in, in Tonga was affected um, by, by the cyclone. Um, um, my family and I were one of those. Um, we were, it was, it was a new experience. Um, that was like the first time we've ever like had to go through such a strong cyclone. Like I believe that was a sleepless night for us. Like we, we wouldn't, we weren't able to sleep well. I don't know if anyone slept. <laughs> so yeah, like I believe, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of us were affected, but then I believe it it made us more. Um, it it enabled us to like prepare more for like future events like that. We're situated like where we live. Like people are, live close to each other. Like. Um, from house to house and we basically like know most of the people that we live so like the the good thing about this is like when when we are faced with such troubles we we can like work together and like um, better prepare ourselves like uh, as a community to like um, address um, or like prepare ourselves for these kind of natural disasters because I believe in Tonga like we're very deeply rooted in like um, rel- uh, family relations, um, collaborative working, and those kind of stuff. So, I grew up in a community that, like, we would help each other out wherever we need. Tonga, it's become drier in the dry season, causing drought, and there's more rain in the wet season, causing flooding. And uh, with the drying trend, it is likely to continue in the coming decade. Tonga will face fewer but more intense tropical cyclones with associated higher storm surges. There will also be continued relative sea level rise along with storm surges and waves. This will exacerbate coastal flooding with the potential to increase saltwater intrusions. Another effect 
would be the threat to agriculture. So I, I, I know you might know this, but in Tonga, we rely heavily on imports. So we, our imports are more than what we export. Um, I don't know if we export anything, but so most of the people would then rely on their agriculture, their root crops, their farms, plantations. And like, because of climate change, these, these agricultures are, are being affected, they're, they're being threatened. And like, these are like, these are most of the people in Tonga, this is what they rely on um, as a source of income to like provide for their families. So I believe that is also like a major loss um, on like a damage that climate change um, has on, on the people and like their source of living, their source of income is, is the threat to, um, to their agriculture. Also um, in terms of uh, marine ecosystems, I believe um, our ecosystems, uh, the marine ecosystems in Tonga are degrading a lot of, a lot of um, marine ecosystems are being affected greatly by by uh, um, climate change. Um, also, like losses to, as I mentioned, infrastructure because of climate change and like sea level rising. Um, the government has um, went put in an initiative to um, install seawalls across the coast. Um, as of now, I, I believe half of the seawalls is now partly or otherwise fully damaged and so i believe that's that's the main damages that um we are experiencing in the kingdom um, at this moment as sawane mentioned climate change will have a wide range of environmental impacts on tonga and the pacific rising sea levels threaten homes and livelihoods while saltwater intrusion can ruin vital crops and as the ocean absorbs most of the global heating, this will cause many marine ecosystems to deteriorate, a key food source and economic output for many communities around the Pacific. There's also the increased risk of natural disasters. But beyond all of this, there's profound social and cultural ramifications. This is an area of expertise for Mahalani Delaney. Both my parents are from Papua New Guinea from PNG. So I, I have always um, considered PNG to be um, like a, a second home. Whenever I go back there, it's uh, just the best. Mahalani is a project officer and works in Pacific engagement at the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. Over half of the population in the Pacific are exposed to um, sea level rise or like because they live within a low-lying coastal zone, so within a couple of kilometres from the shore. Um, and I think it was in the Western Pacific region, which over the last about two, two three decades, they had the highest level of sea level rise um, from anywhere in the world. And there's already been uh, many communities who have had to relocate due to sea level rise. And if you were to ask the elderly, in Kiribati, the answer is no. They would wish to stay on, even die here. The best we can hope to have is to maintain the integrity of our culture. So from the social, cultural, environmental perspective, it has yeah, very different impacts depending on which community you're talking to. But one that we hear a lot is the, the cultural impact and the loss of um, 
sites of connection to ancestral places of significance, to places where their ancestors have been buried, um, and also this loss of parents being able to share their way of living with their children, um, which is really quite, um, when you hear stories from people explaining that, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And, and devastating and then in terms of the social implications of course there's changing um livelihoods like a lot of people rely on rain-fed agriculture so if we're talking about sea level rise inundation of freshwater resources uh, means that they have to rely on for example external external aid or people to provide like bottled water or resources in that respect or um, they have to rely on imported food because they can no longer rely on, you know, their gardens or um, agriculture that they previously have been able to. And, of course, like the most significant or kind of the last case um, or one of the largest impacts is when people have to relocate from where they have always lived. Um, and that really is you know, what people say is an existential threat. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Currently, we're listening to Mahalani Delaney speak about the impacts of climate change on Pacific communities. I'd be really interested to hear what kind of adaptation measures are being implemented at the moment in Pacific nations to to adapt to the the sea level rise that's already locked in? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the main ones that a lot of people hear about um, and that we see is uh, like restoration of ecosystems, like nature nature based solutions tend to be a preference across the region as opposed to um, like what they call like hard adaptation measures. <laughs> so for example, um, there was this incredible lady from the Cataract Islands in PNG, which were the first official, I think, uh, climate refugees. Um, and her community have been, they have a nursery where they grow um, mangroves. And I think, so she was saying at COP26 last year, they were growing like 25,000 mangrove seedlings for the younger generation to go back and replant um, on the islands in the hopes that one day, you know, they'll be able to go back um, to those islands. And the mangroves act as kind of a buffer between, their natural buffer between the, the ocean and the land. Um, so that's one example. And then when I was talking about hard adaptation measures, those are things like um, seawalls that people have built, um, which are like, you know, physical, actual walls in the ocean that stop king tides being able to come in and inundate, um, as well as putting stilts and raising houses um, and, yeah, different, different activities like that. There's a growing consensus among the environmentalist community that richer countries should foot the bill for climate damages experienced by less developed nations, most of whom contributed minuscule amounts to global emissions. At the 2011 Conference of Parties in Copenhagen, delegates agreed to raise $100 billion per year 
for climate action in the global south. But according to data from the OECD, the target of $100 billion is yet to be achieved in any of the last 10 years. Personally, I think um, from, a, from a climate justice perspective, it is the role of richer nations to provide finance to, um, to countries that are being affected by climate change who have done so little to contribute to the problem, like um, Pacific Island countries and territories who, you know, emit, I think it's like, it was less than 0.03% of total historical emissions and are the most impacted. Um, and so in terms of finance, going back to that that lady's story from the Cataract Islands, she was talking about how they have been struggling to find finance for those like from those mangrove nurseries, struggling to find finance to make um to build the houses for the families that have had to relocate to Bougainville from the islands. Um and and she was just saying, yeah, all these things that they need to do to be able to deal with climate change that they haven't had finance for. And that's just one example across, you know, hundreds of thousands of communities who are facing similar things. Um, and particularly, you know, I've, I've grown up in Australia, also Australian. So I come from the perspective of um, thinking as one of the largest exporters of fossil fuels that we also have a role to play in, in providing climate finance. Um, at the same time, well, on that note, like I think it was, I think in, in 2021, we spent like 11 billion on, on fossil fuel subsidies, according to like Australian Institute research. Um, and yet as a global community, we can't mobilize 100 billion a year for climate finance, which is what, the agreed target is that was agreed up in in I think it was COP fifteen. Um, so, in saying that, Australia is also the biggest climate finance provider of climate finance for the Pacific region. So it's definitely like a you know a global a global thing that we need to solve. And absolutely, these nations are not the ones responsible for for the issue. So, I think. We need to be doing more to mobilise that finance, not only for um, mitigation, but also adaptation as well. I believe that like developed countries, like like you mentioned, like Australia, you like all the European countries, I believe they have a responsibility to like respond to like the effects of climate change in the Pacific. Um, firstly, through like mitigating factors. Um, I believe uh, Australia should like, countries such as Australia should be like taking significant steps to reduce uh, its greenhouse gases emissions and transition to a much lower carb carbon economy. Like by, by implementing these um, ambitious, uh, these emission reduction targets, and adopting renewable energy sources like um, as we know like these countries they they produce most of the gases that go into our atmosphere causing this so so i believe uh, mitigating efforts from these countries such as renew, uh, reducing their carbon emissions would, would greatly um, help the, the pacific uh, battling climate change also like in terms of financial support um 
I believe most of the Pacific um, countries, they lack the financial capabilities to to try to battle this this climate change battle that we have here in the Pacific. So I believe uh, countries, uh, the, the richer countries should provide uh, increased financial support to the Pacific Island nations for climate change adaptation and like uh, resilient resilience building initiatives. This this can like support um, this can support funding for in infrastructure development and uh, disaster risk reduction measures. Uh, also, sustainable agriculture, renewable energy projects. Um, yeah, and also, I believe, um, collaboration and partnership. I believe, like, partnering with these uh, um, richer countries, um, working together with the countries in the Pacific um, to address this issue of climate change um, um, would really, really help uh, the Pacific in its um, battle against climate change, um, including uh, this, this could like um, enhance the sharing of research data, uh, the, the practices that they use, the technologies, initiatives. Um, also, um, I believe acknowledging the loss and damages um, and making people more aware of these, um, the effects of climate change in the, not only the Pacific, but um, different uh, regions in the world. I believe we should like um, these countries should acknowledge the losses and damages that this the this issue has caused, um, because then only then like we would be able to um, do something about it. I think it's really important to note that. Um, communities across the Pacific are really pushing back on the narrative that, you know, we're we're drowning and that it is this set in stone future. Like there is some level of sea level rise that is locked in. What they like, what science calls locked in, it's going to happen. But it is still very much in our hands as to how much sea level rise we will allow. With climate havoc comes hope. There's a growing movement of Pacifica leaders fighting for their rights to their homelands. Young people have been an instrumental part in this. One young person who is determined to make a difference is Magdalene Johnson, a member of Jojigam, an organisation that helps young people in the Marshall Islands respond to climate change. My name is Magdalene Johnson and I'm from the Marshall Islands. I am a youth coordinator at a nonprofit here based in the Marshall Islands called Jojigo, where we focus on youth and climate change. The project that I'm under is the Climate Webinar Series, where we discuss different topics, for example, the sciences, impacts of, impacts of climate change nationally and internationally, nuclear legacy, art, all of that, and we discuss how they link to climate change and how our government leaders and different organizations are coming together to find solutions. The NAP team, that's the National Adaptation Plan team, because we have a NAP team. And basically what that is, they go to um, the neighboring islands and they um, talk about, like, basically, like, the plan B, you know what I mean? Like, what to do if, like, if it gets worse, you know? Like, basically, like, the backup plan for the Marshall Islands, you know? And so... Um, 
what we're doing with the loss and debt, how we're doing, we're basically kind of um, piggybacking if, you know, like we're trying to see where like the sites of loss and damage are. Magdalene is part of a generation of young Pacific leaders tackling an existential threat, a generation that continues to inspire the world as they push for a better future. We were watching how our leaders are um, handling situations and we can learn from it. Or we can also just stand up to them and be like, oh, hey, like you're actually like what you're doing is wrong. You know, considering, like, this generation, like, they can really be the voice in all of that. We'll finish up with an excerpt from a powerful speech by Samoan youth climate activist Brianna Fruin. When I was a little girl, I was taught the importance and impact of words. In my culture, in Samoa, there's a proverb that goes, E pala ma'a aile pala upu. It means that even stones decay, but words remain. A lesson in knowing how words can be wielded, how text can change everything, how each word you use is weighted, how switching one word or number could reframe worlds, how climate action can be vastly different from climate justice, how two degrees could mean the end and 1.5 could mean a fighting chance. You all have the power here today to be better, to remember that in your meeting rooms and drafting documents are more than just black and white objects, to remember that in your words you wield the weapons that can save us or sell us out. I don't need to remind you the reality of vulnerable communities. If you're here today, you know what climate change is doing to us. You don't need my pain or my tears to know that we're in a crisis. The real question is whether you have the political will to do the right thing, to wield the right words, and to follow it up with long overdue action. If you're looking for inspiration on this, look no further than the climate leadership of young Pacific people. We are not just victims to this crisis, we have been resilient beacons of hope. Pacific youth have rallied behind the cry, we are not drowning, we are fighting. This is our warrior cry to the world, we are not drowning, we are fighting. This is my message from Earth to COP. I hope you remember my words today and look closely at your words as you go throughout COP because Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. I'd like to give a special thanks to all of our guests today, Sawane Tupola, Mahalani Delaney and Magdalene Johnson for their generous time. And I'd also like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support of this program. I'm Jacob Gamble. We'll be back same time next week 